0: Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the as we open afresh Your Holy Word, that You would satisfy our hunger and that You would quench our thirst. May we long to hear You speak to us both corporately and individually, and that to our deepest and greatest need. Holy Spirit, come and illumine our minds and seal our hearts, we pray. Amen. Well, the accusation against Jesus and His disciples, it did not end during the great feast of celebration, in the house of Matthew, the tax collector. We find that the opposition from the Pharisees and the scribes continued. And their first charge was this. Why are you feasting with sinners? They had a problem that Jesus was associating Himself with the wretched and the debased of society. They were appalled at the collection of sinners Jesus was dining with. No man who claims to have come from God would defile himself in such a way to embrace unclean sinners such as tax collectors and prostitutes and swindlers. Now as we saw last Lord's Day, Jesus, He made sure to respond and to give an answer to their charge. It's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. And while the former tax collector there truly grasped that answer, The problem was that these religious men, they didn't. They didn't see themselves as sick. They thought they were healthy. And beloved, that might be one of the most unsafe positions to be in. To be unaware. To be incognizant of what is taking place within your soul. That to think it is thriving when in reality it is, but dying. You see, in the house of that tax collector, there were Those either rejoicing or perishing. And if an outside observer were to look through a window into that house, it would have turned their senses to see who is who. Jesus said this in Matthew 21 to the religious rulers of Israel, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. You see, there needs to be an assessment. There needs to be an assessment then on our part, lest we too find ourselves shut out from the kingdom. And that assessment can only come when we look into the gospel of God's Son. I have not come, says Jesus, to call the proud. I have not come to call the upright, but rather the unworthy and the vile to repentance. The gospel is that Jesus came for sinners and for sinners only. Not the righteous, meaning not the self sufficient, not the self justifying, but for those who are weak, for those who are needy. Notice Jesus' words here serve not only to rebuke these self righteous Pharisees, but it was a call for their repentance, to look themselves in the mirror of the words of Christ and to see their true condition and to turn for Him, to turn to Him for His grace. Yet notice there was none of that here with another opportunity came more hardening. If you read and follow along with the church Bible reading plan, we read Romans 10.21 this week. And it says there, but of Israel, He says, all day long I have held out My hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, what does all of this matter to us? It's because you see, Matthew's house can look a lot like the church where you have both the rejoicing of converted people and the religious appearance of unconverted people. That there are people who live for outward appearances, yet are perishing and have no place in the kingdom. Week after week, they hear the beckoning of Christ to no avail. You see, this sermon is not so much about fasting or even feasting but it's about hardening a hardening that has taken place in the heart in which the christianity one might think they're living is really no christianity at all the interaction that takes place here in luke chapter 5 verses 33 through 39 it begins with a question and follows with an answer and that's what we're going to use. We'll use that question and answer to make our way through this narrative. And we'll look at those two parts. Well, as we just reviewed the first charge from the Pharisees, we discovered that there's a second. And it's not why are you feasting with sinners? But why are you feasting at all? Their complaint was no longer about the company with whom Jesus was reclining with, but the very fact that Jesus... And his disciples were themselves eating. The Pharisees that approached Jesus, they wanted to see his disciples fasting and not feasting. Now, before we get into their accusation here, we need, to need, we need to see something of who these accusers are. And it's because we're not only dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes here. Leave your finger here in Luke 5 and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, he also records the episode of his own conversion. There in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And he also records the following interaction that took place. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. And we're really just going to look at this one verse. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples? Do not fast. What you'll immediately notice here is that a different group of people here in Matthew approached Jesus. You see, Matthew's party had some additional guests in which Luke he left out. Along with the scribes and the Pharisees, the disciples of John were there. They had made their way to the house of the tax collector. And we find them coming alongside of the Pharisees and joining in on their criticism against Jesus. Now, if there was ever a group of people that you did not want to associate with, it was that of the scribes and the Pharisees. No one was as opposed to Christ. They led the way to seek Him and to have Him killed. How is it then that the disciples of John the Baptist have found themselves in agreement with them? What went wrong? These are the followers of John the Baptist. Well, surely this can't be coming from John the Baptist. For no one was as for Christ like the prophet. He was Jesus' greatest promoter. He was Jesus' forerunner who heralded the coming of Christ and went before the people to make ready the way of the Lord. Jesus Himself, He said of John, He said this, that there was no one born among women greater than John the Baptist. Not only that, but who did John make sure to go hard after? The Pharisees. John, he he repeatedly uh, rebuked them and condemned them for their false religion. He called them a brood of vipers, the offspring of venomous snakes. And he said to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Baptists he saw right through their self Religious pride and pomp. And so the disciples of John, they didn't inherit this this attitude of opposition against Jesus from John. Far, far from it. Well, what is going on here? I think two things. Number one, we ought to be careful of appearances. Just because they considered themselves to be disciples of John didn't mean they were disciples of John. You see, if they were, there would not have been this promotion of self, but rather a desire for Christ. And like John confessed, he must increase and I must decrease. These false disciples of John, who had received Christ-centered teaching, turned it into self-centered living. And there is such a thing to sit under the faithful preaching of God's Word, yet live like a Pharisee. There is such a thing. And the reputation, that the reputation that they carried didn't really account for anything. To say that you're a disciple of John doesn't really do much. And we know that because there was even a disciple of Jesus named Judas. And we know what he turned out to be. Number two, if these disciples learned from John, they would have left following John in order to follow Jesus. Listen to how it played out for two of John's disciples in John chapter 1, verse 35. It says there in the narrative, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. One of them happened to be Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. If they had listened to John, they would have left John to follow Jesus. These disciples of John should have become disciples of Christ, yet they didn't. They remained in their man-following, in their man-pleasing condition. And they didn't see whom John's entire ministry pointed towards. And that can happen at times as well. There are some people who get so enamored, so entrenched with a preacher, that they become a disciple of that pastor or that preacher, and never a disciple of Christ. That can happen. This was the case for the Corinthian church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. And then you had the most noble group. I follow Christ. But you see, in reality, that proud group, they were really following themselves. We ought to be careful of making much of men and making much of ourselves. We ought to be watchful about living for appearances. It's one of the traits that are most antithetical to any true disciple of Jesus. The principle is true. No one can serve two masters. You will either love the one or you will hate the other. And self-righteous people who think highly of themselves, well, we know who they love. They love themselves. They love themselves. These disciples of John, they had no semblance with the baptizer, which is why they were so averse to Christ. And they come holding hands with the Pharisees and the scribes, criticizing Jesus. And if you were to read Matthew's account, they ask a question. But the question is not really a question, it's rather an accusation, a critical statement in the form of a question. But if you come to Luke here, Luke interprets the question into an accusation while Matthew retains the question. Which is to say there isn't a discrepancy in these two Gospel accounts. Rather, it's a testament to its clarity. Luke 5, verse 33. And they said to Him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat And drink. Now notice what they were saying. Why do your disciples not fast like we do? In other words, how come they're not doing what we're doing? You see, church, that's a very dangerous question to ask. The kind that those who are all about appearances tend to ask. Why are they doing what I'm doing? As if the standard of holiness is based upon what you're doing. And if anyone is found not doing what you're doing, then those individuals must not be holy then. I'm afraid there are people who actually think this way. This is the essence of legalism. And it is to join the company of the Pharisees. When when he addressed the Roman church, this was one of their issues. Judgment was being passed upon each other. And Christians were despising each other for doing different things and paul says in romans 14 that there can be one who eats in honor of the lord and there can be one who doesn't eat who abstains in honor of the lord for none of us lives to himself but we live to the lord in other words holiness is not measured by our own selves and what we do but it is measured by the lord jesus is holy and holiness is measured in likeness to Him. And I mentioned this last week. The disciples of John, along with the scribes and the Pharisees, they were passing judgment upon Jesus, the holy and the eternal Son of God and His disciples because they weren't doing what those who live for appearances were doing. And what were they not doing? They said fasting often and offering prayers. Now, those appear to be very Christian things, no? Imagine if we were guests in that house watching this confrontation take place, we would have thought to ourselves, ah, yeah, Jesus, why why don't you and the disciples do those things? Shouldn't you be be doing those things? Now here are what People who live for appearances, this is what they like to do. They like to assume. People who live for appearances like to assume. And they assume wrongly. Jesus himself, in facing temptation from the devil in the wilderness, fasted 40 days, eating nothing. What do we find Jesus consistently doing? Luke chapter 4, if you want to look back, verse 42. He departed and went into the desolate place to pray. Luke 5:15 He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. They thought they knew Jesus, but they had no clue. But more so, when Jesus taught his disciples how to fast and how to pray, what did he say? Matthew chapter 6 verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What did Jesus teach His disciples? When you fast and pray, don't make a public spectacle out of it but come before your Father in heaven. For John's disciples and the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't get the memo. They were doing it all wrong. They're fasting. They're praying. wasn't really fasting or praying. It it was all a public show. And that to get the applause and the praise of men, it was all a formality. It was all an external duty. They treated it like a ritual. And that to elevate themselves. To puff themselves up. To look good in front of other people. This is what Jesus means when He says that they have received their reward. Not the reward of God, but the reward of men. It was to feed that desire to make themselves look holy without being holy. They were all about appearances. And as such, Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the disciples of John or the Pharisees. And you see, they assumed Jesus and His disciples. They didn't fast or pray. And this is what happens when you live for appearances. You make wrong assumptions about other people and you make hypocritical judgments on other people. And Jesus condemns that kind of religion. You see, church, we need to be careful about this popular kind of religion that I dare say no congregation is free of. We need to admit that there is more Pharisee in us than we care to confess. Maybe it doesn't look so blatant like the ones Jesus condemns here, but... How much more of our faith is merely external with little to know in the internal? Where you can sum up your Christianity like this to simply keep up with appearances. Is all of our Christianity bound in what is observable on a Sunday or any other day? Wrapped up in the outward things that we do for the church without any secret communion with God before our Father who is in heaven. Absent of any desperation, any humility of soul to come to Him behind the closed door. Now there's something that we need to know about fasting. It was actually only required by law once out of the year. And that on the Day of Atonement. It was a day of mourning and repentance as they called their, recalled their deliverance out of Egypt and they were to fast as a nation, but the law never commanded them to fast any other time. The people of Israel, they weren't commanded to fast weekly. It was rather something the Pharisees, they added. Listen to the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18. I thank God that I'm not like other men, for I fast. Remember what he said? Twice a week. He fasted more than a hundred times than what God had commanded. And the very reason why they fasted over a hundred times is because they lived for appearances. They were more concerned with the, their external righteousness, looking a certain way, playing a certain part, than the true inward heart religion in which God required. They wanted to impress people. Are you you here because you simply want to impress people? Do you do what you do at church simply to impress people, to live for their praise? Fasting was never meant to be some kind of public ceremony, but a voluntary inward conviction That comes because of a desperate situation in which the people of God go without food. Not in order to be holy, but because they are humbled. Humbled and in great dependence. At times, mourning over sin. At times, utterly seeking God for help. At times, for renewal. At other times, for revival. Looking away from the provisions of their flesh. Looking intently and asking for the provision of God. Which is why... Fasting is always connected to praying. Fasting is rather a help to prayer. Not something that manipulates God into hearing our prayer, but something that reminds us of the seriousness of the matter in which we are taking to Him in prayer. The Pharisees had turned it into a means of merit. They had turned fasting and they had turned prayer into something that displeased God. And not only did they do this with prayer and fasting, but with their offering, their almsgiving. There was no gratitude in giving. Only believing that their giving would be a means of gaining. Remember when Jesus saw the widow put in her two mites, He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. When we survey the book of Acts, when we survey the New Testament, there are occasions in which the people of God in which they fasted. But fasting was never made into some special feature of the Christian life. It's really a manner of praying. A prayer that is filled with much mourning and grieving. A coming to God and not a boast before men. Well, how does Jesus respond as we move from the question and now to the answer. How does Jesus respond to the accusation of John's disciples and the scribes and the Pharisees? He answers them by way of illustration. And He gives three in particular. The first comes from the world of marriage and weddings. The second comes from garments and sewing and patching. And the third from wine and the storage of it. Notice He addresses the first in verse 34, when they asked, why are your disciples, why are they not fasting but feasting? Jesus, He answers their question with a question. Jesus says, I can play games too. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is a fairly simple illustration. A wedding is not a time for mourning or grieving but a time for rejoicing and celebration. The manner in which a person conducts himself at a wedding is vastly different than say that of a funeral. It would be very inappropriate and even rude and disrespectful to act at a wedding as if you were at a funeral and vice versa. Totally different occasions. It's because each occasion demands a proper response. A wedding is a joyous and festive and lively event. The union and and marriage of a man and a woman and the bond of a lifelong commitment to love and to cherish and to keep, that requires celebration, shouting, clapping, cheering, the clanging of wine glasses. And if our elder Basil is emceeing the wedding, you know how he gets... He gets really, and in my own vocabulary, He gets very juiced. Very juiced. Jesus says, the reason why they're not fasting is because the fitting response is that of rejoicing. But, but, why? It's because the bridegroom of their souls is with them. This isn't a time for mourning or grieving. God's Son has come down from heaven, is abiding with them, They are in the midst of celebration and feasting rather than sadness and fasting. And beloved, notice the background of this very interaction. They're in the house of a tax collector who had just come to the reality of Jesus, His Savior. Jesus and His disciples, they were celebrating the marriage of a soul to His Savior. Matthew has just been wed to Jesus Christ as a bride to a bridegroom. And here was the bridegroom now in the presence of all of His guests. Now all of all people, the disciples of John the Baptist, they should have understood Jesus' answer. Of all people. It's because in John chapter 3, verse 29, He said this, John the Baptist said this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, John the Baptist said this, this joy of mine is now complete. You know what John was saying? The Messiah, the Christ, has come. As a friend of the bridegroom, my eyes have seen the Lord. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And you see, that statement was significant. Because throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God, He described Himself as a husband to His people. Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name. John was declaring... God has come for His bride in Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus gave that illustration, the disciples of John, out of all people, they should have known that it wasn't just a matter of acting appropriately, but they had failed to see God their Maker. That was the issue. They had completely missed Jesus. And you can come to church and you can completely miss Jesus. These sad and miserable and dead and religious people had hardened their hearts against Him. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Do you see who is in their very presence? God Himself was in their very presence. And yet here were the disciples of John, the scribes and the Pharisees, staring into the very face of God in Jesus Christ, criticizing Him of not being holy as they themselves were holy. They were telling God, how come you're not holy like I'm holy? If they had spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, oh, they would have seen what was taking place before them. God, their Savior in the flesh. And here was Jesus Christ feasting with His disciples over His work of redeeming grace in the life of a tax collector. And when Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep, He said, rejoice with Me, for I have found My sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When heaven rejoices, beloved, we too ought to rejoice. And this is what was happening here. The citizens of that heavenly country, they were all acting and responding accordingly. The bridegroom has come. The bridegroom is here. This is what Jesus was saying. The bridegroom whose presence fills the lives of His people with joy is before them. Oh, but the disciples of John. The scribes and the Pharisees. Bound up in their formalities. Tied to their legalism. Obsessed with their externalism. Lost in their pride. Never to know the joy. Never to know the presence of His love. You see, for us as Christians, you know what we sing? We sing this. And it's very appropriate for this time. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. That's what we sing. Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In Your presence there is fullness of joy. Now it doesn't mean that we are characterized by a kind of superficiality or a triteness or that we will never experience grief and sorrow. There are times in which we will suffer heartache and loss and grief, we will in this life experience tribulation, devastation. And so there will be times when in deep sorrow, we find ourselves desiring no food, but rather desiring to wholly lean upon the Lord in earnest prayer. But you see, even in deep sorrow, even in agonizing pain, There is joy. There is a settled conviction. A lasting contentment because we have salvation. Christ is with us. Pastor Dave just said it in his children's sermon. Emmanuel, God is with us. Our lives are marked by joy that doesn't depend on circumstances but rests in Christ. Notice what Jesus says in verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Here for the first time in Luke's Gospel, Jesus, He makes reference to the very reason why He came. To live. To suffer. To die. When Jesus mentions the bridegroom being taken away, it's not that He has left on His own accord But the literal wording here is that he will be taken away in violence. There will be mourning, says Jesus. There will be fasting, a time of fasting for my disciples. They will be devastated for the bridegroom will be violently taken away. Well, why? Why did the bridegroom have to suffer such violence? Well, the answer is this. For the sake of of His bride. Isaiah 53 says this, Like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment, now hear it in Isaiah, He was taken away. He was taken away. He was taken away. The bridegroom was taken away in judgment. To bear the sins of not His own, but of His bride upon the tree. To beautify His bride. To wash and to cleanse His bride. What do we witness in almost every wedding from Ephesians chapter 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. You see, He was taken away for her. Suffering violence upon the cross. Bearing the weight of sin. Absorbing the full wrath of God, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the Gospel. And non-Christian, come to Christ to be washed, to be cleansed, to be purified from your sins, in the shed blood of Jesus. That's why He was violently taken away. It's because He loves His bride. Repent then of your sins that you may be counted among those who declare Christ to be their husband and maker. Jesus said when He's taken away, then His disciples will will fast. But even in such sorrow, It was Jesus who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. That even in such sorrow, it was Jesus who, for the joy set before Him, Hebrews says, endured the cross, despising the shame. What a Savior we have in Jesus. Who is not only our great physician, as we learned from last week, but He is our great Beloved. He's the very lover of our souls. Just a quick note of application before we move on. Husbands, what what a responsibility in light of this. When we understand the illustration that Jesus is giving here. Husbands, what a responsibility in light of this. That the Lord calls us to love our wives as He has loved the church. And you might be thinking, impossible, impossible. How do I do do that? Where, Where do I even begin to try to do that? You will never begin, husbands, to love in any way like this until you discover His love. And the more you know of His love, He will enable you to love your wife in that way. Husbands, the most loving thing you can do for your wife is to love God. That's the most loving thing you can do. To seek Him. To commune with Him. To treasure Him. To follow Him. To know Him. To love Him. The honest truth The honest truth is that the reason why some of our marriages are not what they're supposed to be is because we as husbands need to do more loving. Loving towards God. We have not submitted to our heavenly Maker and husband as we ought. Jesus then gives a second and third illustration. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If He does, He will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If He does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus says that new unshrunk cloth that has never known weathering Sewn unto old cloth will only tear. And that new wine, when put into old, fragile, thinning wineskin, will only cause it to burst when fermented. What's Jesus' point? Jesus didn't come to simply be a patch on the religion of these Pharisees. He's not someone you just stick onto some dead kind of false appearances. But Jesus is radically and totally unlike the external formalism of the religious. And you see what Jesus says at the end of this passage here is so true. Some people though, they simply, they don't want it. They don't want it. They want to keep to their old ways. They want to continue in their vain hypocrisy. They don't want to be disturbed in their religiosity. They want to keep doing what they're doing. They want to keep coming to church, but not be truly disturbed internally. They don't want it. Verse 39, he says, No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. There's a lot of people in church who like the old wine, who think that the old is good, and you see, we can get very used to living for outward appearances. Come to church. Serve in this ministry. Attend that fellowship. Open our Bibles and service. Fold our hands when we pray. Sing when we have to sing. Yet nothing of a new life in Christ. There is such a thing. There is such a thing. And let me just say, that is simply waiting for the wineskins to be destroyed. If you continue to live like that, you will be destroyed. Christ came not to be some kind of patch or some kind of quick fix or some kind of add-on to cover those places where our sins are showing But He came to clothe us from head to toe in His righteousness to take away the old that we might put on the new. Today's baptism are testimonies of individuals not just who are repaired, but they are made new. They are made new. Which is why when they go into that water, fully submerged, they are saying they have died to themselves. Buried with Christ. And as they come up out of that water, like Jesus, they have risen in the newness of life. Christianity is not about accommodating Jesus into the old structures of our lives. But it's about being born again into a radically new life. If any man be in Christ as Paul, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the question is as we close, have you been made new I don't care how many years you've been coming to church. Have you been made new? Or are you keeping with old appearances? Christian, we, we do not go about mourning in a kind of dead religion, but we rejoice. We rejoice for Christ has made us new. Wed not to this world, but to Christ, our husband, our maker. I close, I close with this story. In 1859, a Presbyterian preacher by the name of James Thornwell had the opportunity to announce the wedding of his daughter Nancy. In the weeks leading up to this event, the hundreds traveling would end up not at a wedding, but rather at a funeral. As his daughter became ill with typhoid and her health began to decline, Thornwell came to his daughter's bedside in her dying and waning moments and he said, Oh, my dear daughter, such tragedy. She replied, Father, do not weep. I know my Savior. He said, but this was to be your wedding, your your whole life now before you. And his daughter, the youth, yet with greater maturity said, Father, but I go now to a greater groom that I am prepared to meet. And she was laid to rest in her wedding gown in which the epitaph on her tombstone reads, as a bride prepared for her groom. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Savior, we thank You that You have saved us out of our old manner of life. A life of sin. A life that was perishing. And You have made us new. By Your Spirit, help us to live in that newness, rejoicing in Christ our Savior, submitting ourselves in love and in obedience to Him. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for reverting back to our old ways into a life of appearances. Into a life of appearances before men and not before our God. Oh, give us a right vision of Christ. May our eyes be fixed not upon our garments, but upon our bridegroom's face. It's in his name we pray. Amen.